Would you just join me in, um, this is the statement that we have, as um, a church, have put together about our calling to be a faithful witness. And let's just say it together. That God calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in the city of Fort Wayne and to every other place the Holy Spirit sends us. And we do that by proclaiming the good news of Jesus and by works of kindness, justice, and mercy. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. I, I just want us to start by realizing that our statement says we are called. Um, and I wanted to give us an opportunity to understand and to give praise to God for being called. It's a privilege to be called. So I looked up what the, the, the words would mean. Um, I'll start actually, let me start by reading two scriptures. I've got them up on, um, on the slides, First Peter 2.9 and X1.8. So we'll start with First Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It says to us, we are chosen, we are called, we are a chosen generation, a royal, royal, royal priesthood. We are royal because of our relationship with Jesus, nothing else. Our relationship with Jesus gives us the right to walk in that. We are a holy nation, a special people, that we will proclaim praises to him. The reason for all this is that praise would go back to him. The reason for all that we see and all that we experience in Jesus is that praise goes back to Jesus. Amen? So we see that. And then in, in, for us here at Broadway, we say we are called to be salt and light. It's so that praises would go back to him. All right, let's go to the next scripture. And then it says, you receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses, which is where we get that. We shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we say that we are called here at Broadway to be salt and light in the city here and every other place where the Holy Spirit sends us. And he has sent us and he has called us. That word call in Greek is the word kaleo. And that word means to call out aloud. God has called each one of us at a loud voice, called us loud out. He has invited us. That's what it, called. it means, invite. And he has called us by name, individually. Yes, as a body we are called, but individually God has called us by name. What a privilege. And not only that, that word also meant that to receive a name, to receive a new name. God has called us and given us a new name. That we are witnesses to him here in Fort Wayne. And so, there God has called us and he has saluted us by that name that we are witnesses. And we need to give praise to God for it. And then it speaks again, we say we are called to be a faithful witness. The word faithful is amen, almost close to amen that we do, we say. But it speaks about, it speaks about to support, to be firm, to be faithful. It speaks about to foster. It speaks about um, pillars that support something. Faithfulness is undergirding something. 
And then it speaks about to be established. It speaks about to be cared for by a nurse. It speaks about being confirmed, verified. Lastly, it speaks about to stand firm, to trust, to be certain, to be certain and to believe in. We are called as witnesses to stand firm in our call, in what we have seen, in what we say. And we thank God for that. We don't do that in, in blindness. We do that being cared for. It say that, that word spoke about being cared for by a nurse. We do that being cared for by God himself. Thank you, Lord, that you care for us enough to call us to be faithful witnesses. Then witness speaks of, of, being, of giving evidence of things that you have seen. But also it speaks of, of, being, of being ethical about the witness that you give, of the evidence that you give in an ethical sense. And I want to encourage us as we think about these three words that pertain, that are the gist, faithful witness. We are called to be faithful witness and to thank God for it. Being called and being sent by God is an opposite of, it's just opposite of being obliged. We are not obliged. It's a privilege. It's a joy to be sent. It's an opportunity to work alongside God. And I want to encourage us to give praise to God today for the opportunity of calling us to be witnesses. For the opportunity of calling us to walk with him and to be faithful in what he has called us to do. That word faithful is as well used in some most places where it says Abraham believed God. Our faithfulness in witness will be in our belief in God. And we want to thank God for that opportunity. And I want us to just realize not, it's, it's not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. And we are grateful for that. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you are a God who calls us. You call us by name. You change our name. You identify us with you. So we can be able to identify, to identify too with you. So we give you praise for that call this morning. We thank you for Broadway and the many other areas that Broadway, you have called Broadway to be. But this morning, Lord, we just want to give you praise for calling us to be faithful witnesses in this city and wherever your spirit sends us. We thank you for that, Lord. We don't take it for granted. We give you praise for it. And Lord, this morning, we realize how much of a privilege it is to be called by your name and to be called to serve this great kingdom, to be called to be royal priests. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we are going to be looking at a few verses from the gospel according to John. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. And Jesus prayed, My prayer is not for them alone, that is, his disciples who were in the room for him that, with him that day. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in, in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. I'm sorry, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, through this prayer of Jesus about us. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples sharing in a Passover meal. On most Sunday mornings, when we take communion, we are reminded of this particular moment. It was the last night that Jesus spent with his friends before he was arrested, beat, spit on, falsely accused, and hung onto the cross to die. This was his last night, and he knew it. His betrayal and arrest and his death on the cross was not a surprise to him. Right, Gary? It was not a surprise. He knew what was in store for him next. He knew that what he was going to face. And he also knew what his disciples were going to face. He knew the fear and the loss that were going to come to them. He knew the disappointment and confusion that were going to come for the next, in the next few days. He knew about the persecution that they would face later. And so like the good teacher that he was, he spends this last night with them in the upper room, giving them instructions and guidance about the days ahead. And he begins by demonstrating sacrificial love for one another as he knelt down and as he washed their feet. And then he begins to tell them that he was going to die, but even though he was going to die and leave them in the body, that he was going to send his Holy Spirit, the helper, to come and to be his personal presence with them through all of their trials and through all of their witnessing in the world. He reminds them to abide in him, like the vine and the branches, to abide in him. And if they abide in him, if they remain close to him, that they will bear good fruit. And he also tells them that he no longer calls them servants, but he calls them friends. And then after giving all of these instructions and after spending this time washing their feet, after all of that, Jesus prays. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays. The Son talks to the Father, and we get to listen in on that conversation. We get to listen to the way that Jesus the Son addresses the Father. In John chapter 17, we get to listen how the eternal Son, now joined with us in human flesh, we hear him talk to the eternal Father about what is on his heart for his disciples and for the world, for you and for me and for the church. Consider that. That's what we get to listen into on John chapter 17. For all of eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, have been in conversation with one another. 
In Genesis 1, the word of God in the beginning said, let there be light, and there was light. And let there be sun and moon and stars, and let there be land and the seas, and let there be birds and fish and mammals and reptiles. The word of God also said, let us make humanity in our image. And so in the image of God, he created human beings, male and female. He did that through his word, through his voice. In Genesis 1, we read about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit bringing life and light and order and coherence to creation. And earlier in, gospel, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, John tells us that the Word of God, this Word that made everything that we've ever seen, that this eternal Word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. In John chapter 17, we read about the Word of God, the one who became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. We get to hear him pray. In John chapter 17, he prays for himself, and he prays for his disciples, those that are there listening to him that day, and he prays for us. He prays for you and me, those that would come later who would believe because of the message of the apostles. We get to listen in on the way that the word of God, Jesus, prayed to his father. And the verses that I just read for you were the beginning of his prayer for us. The beginning of his prayer for you and me, his followers that would come for hundreds and thousands of years later. This is what he prays for us. John seventeen twenty through 23. And what is it that he prays for? What does the Son pray to the Father for, for us? Unity. He prays for oneness. He prays that we would share in the unity of the Trinity. He prays that we would be one, that we would be one with him, that we would be one with the Father, and that we would be one with one another. And in this chapter, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays this prayer three times. In verse 11, in verses 20 and 21, and again in verse 22. He prays that we would be one, that we would have unity together. That we would be unified together with God in the same way that he, the Son, was unified with the Father. That we would be brought together in unity. Let's consider that, friends. On this last night when the Word of God, who is about to be crucified and put to death for the sins of the whole world, he prays for you and for me. And what he chooses to pray for is unity. Oneness. He could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed that after his death and resurrection, that we would be strong and powerful in the world. He could have prayed that, that we would have the ability to do wonders and miracles that would show the world the power of God. But on this last night before his death, he could have prayed for anything, and he prays for unity. That we, his disciples, his followers, would be one together. Our inclination to divide was not a surprise to Jesus. 
Our capacity for selfishness was not a surprise to Jesus. Our propensity to believe that we are right and they are wrong was not a surprise to Jesus. Our belief that our gifts, our talents are somehow more important than someone else's, that was not a surprise to Jesus. Our unwillingness and our resistance to forgive people who have wronged us is not a surprise to Jesus. He knows how willing we are to hold on to a grudge, and so he prays. He prays on this night that his followers would be one, that we would be people who know how to forgive because we have been a people who have been forgiven. Be a people who know how to seek reconciliation because we have experienced reconciliation with God. Jesus' prayer here on the last night for us is that we would be one, that we would be brought together in unity. Not uniformity, not sameness, but unity. That in our diverse perspectives and personalities and differences and gifts, that we would remain one in him as he is one with the Father. His prayer is that all of us, in our differences, in our variety, would remain together one in him. That charismatic types and contemplative types, that they would be one. That people who like to raise their hands and connect with God through the energy of loud worship music would be one with people who connect with God in silence and solitude. That conservatives and progressive and liberals and those who don't really care about all of that stuff, that they would be one. His prayer is that the person who is passionate to see God's justice come in the world, that that person would be one with the person who is passionate about personal holiness. That the person who loves to extend the message of God's grace to hurting and confused people, that that person would be one with the person that's passionate to tell the truth that will set confused and hurting people free. The person who takes the wrath of God and of a perfect and holy God seriously, that that person would be one with the person who has been totally undone by the mercy of God. Jesus' prayer is that people with administrative gifts and encouraging gifts and preaching gifts and miraculous gifts and quiet hidden gifts, that all of them would be one. Jesus' prayer is that all of us, in our various weaknesses and sinfulness and frailties and limitations, that all of us would be one. Friends, this is the prayer that the Son, the eternal Word of God, chose to pray for us on His last night before His crucifixion. The Word that spoke the universe into existence, this is what He chose to pray for us that we would be one. And he doesn't pray for it once. He doesn't pray for it twice. He prays for it three times, that we would be one. Friends, what this tells me is that our divisions in the church, they really matter to God. All of those places where we refuse peace, All of those places where we refuse to forgive, 
all of those places where we refuse to be reconciled to one another, it breaks God's heart. Our inclination to divide was not a surprise to Jesus, and so he prays that we would be one. And why is that? Why does he pray that we would be one? He prays that we would be one because somehow the way that we are one reflects him to the world. Two times in these verses, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that all of them may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that may they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity, our oneness is for witness. Our unity and oneness is not so that we will be comfortable with the group of people who are like us. Our unity is not an expression of, of just good feelings together. Our unity, our oneness is for the purpose of witness, to make God known in the world. That a group of diverse and strange and different people would come together under the authority of him. And say, he is the one that we look to. He is the one that each one of us follow in all of our differences and diversities. Our oneness is a part of our witness to the world about who Jesus is as creator, savior, and Lord. And I want to say to you that the, the reverse is also true. That at every place where we cannot submit to Jesus together is a place where we diminish the power and glory of God. Our divisions really matter to God because our, diminish, our divisions diminish his glory in the world. In the last 18 months in America, they have revealed all of the subtle cracks and hairline fractures and fissures that were already in the church. All of the little things that we sort of ignored or overlooked, all of those things were revealed and brought to the surface. And what we discovered is that there was way more there than we ever could have imagined. I suspect that every one of you in here has a broken or at least a strained relationship with some other believer in your life because of some other some cultural issue that has come up this year right would you be willing to raise your hand if you have a strained or a broken relationship with someone in your life because of some cultural issue definitely most of you every pastor that i know every pastor that i know has had people leave their church because they've said too much or too little about COVID, or too much, or too little about racism, or too much, or too little about masks, or too much, or too little about vaccines, or too much, or too little about a presidential election. Every single pastor I know. All of those issues are important, and they shouldn't be ignored. Theological and doctrinal differences are important, and they shouldn't be ignored. To ignore them is a false kind of peace. It leaves those fissures and those fractures there. But our differences, 
even about really important matters, are an occasion for us to move toward one another in unity in Christ, not an occasion for division. Our differences should not be an occasion to make our wounds deeper, but instead to move toward one another to help bind up our wounds. Our differences are an opportunity to talk and to listen to one another, to discern the truth of a matter. And sometimes when we do that, when we do that sincerely over some issue, there's still not going to be agreement. But even in our disagreement, we can still take hope that God is true, even if all of us are liars. I pray, Father, that they would be one just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be one. Why? So that the world will believe. There is a lot of concern among Christians in America about the failure of the church to influence and change the culture around us. And for me, the revelation of the last two years is that the failure of the American church is not our failure to keep the world from being the world. It's the failure of the church to be the church. The world is always going to go the way of the world. Our failure is not that we have failed to keep the world from being the world. It's that we have failed to be the church that God has called us to be. And I say that about myself as much as any other individual The revelation of the last two years is that we have failed to be the church that Jesus prayed for here, to make manifest what he has already given to us, to live up to what we have already attained. The unity of the church matters to God. The divisions in his church break his heart, and they break his heart because our divisions diminish his glory. They keep the world from knowing him in the way that he wants to be known. And so I just have three suggestions for us as we finish this time in our sermon series on faithful witness. Three practical suggestions about how to live in unity for the sake of witness. How to live in unity for the sake of witness. First, is to live together as a forgiven and forgiving community. To live together as a forgiven and forgiving community. We are a community together only because we've been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. That's it. (laughs) That's where we find our unity I was in need of forgiveness. You were in need of forgiveness. We found it in Jesus, and so were brothers and sisters in Christ. That's it. That is the basis of our unity together. That's why we're together. We've been founded on forgiveness. And so if we've been founded on forgiveness, we need to be a people who are very quick to extend forgiveness to other people. Friends, you know, in some ways it's been very, very public the way I've been involved in relationships that have not been healed and reconciled. So over the last couple of months, I have been considering the different relationships in my life and asking the Lord and seeking advice from elders and counselors and other guides about what my responsibility is in those relationships. And in some of those relationships, 
through guidance and through my own time of prayer and reflection, God has said, that's not your responsibility. You have already done as much as it depends on you to be in reconciliation with those people. There have been others, though, where the Lord has said, yes, you need to take this step or that step in order to seek reconciliation. And I'm beginning to do that in the relationships in my life that have been broken. And I can't make reconciliation happen with all of those people. You can't make reconciliation happen with all of the people who you are experiencing a broken relationship with. But what you can do is everything as much as it depends on you. And you need to begin that by forgiving them. Whatever harm they have done to you, to forgive them. You can do that with the Spirit's help. And then to begin to seek the reconciliation that's possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you that as much as it depends on you, that person or two or ten (laughs) that came to your mind when I asked you earlier, one at a time, you don't have to do it all this week, you don't have to get all of it done real fast, as the Lord brings them to your mind, to be willing to submit yourself and them to him, And ask, Lord, what do I need to do? How do I need to do as much as it depends on me to seek reconciliation with this person? Secondly, I want to encourage you to understand the passions and giftings of your fellow believers. Seek to understand the passions and the giftings of other believers. We live in a very passionate time, for better or for worse. There's a lot of rage, a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of compassion out there in the world. And that's always been the case. But the problem for us is that because of media and social media, we are aware of all of it. And it's really too much for us to hold. You and I are not able within our own selves to hold All of the brokenness of the world. You and I can't hold within our hearts the necessary passion for racial justice or caring for immigrants or caring for the poor or caring for the widow or caring for unborn children or caring for protecting religious freedom. We cannot hold all of that in ourselves. My heart can only be broken in so many pieces. But that's why we have one another. (laughs) God's heart can and does hold all of that. And so God has given his spirit to the whole church so that through the life of the whole diverse church, the spirit can move and work in the world. And it is through the whole diverse church in the world coming together as one that God is at work bringing about his redemption and reconciliation. Each one of us are finite and limited in our knowledge, in our understanding, in our ability to see the world, in our ability to lament all of the hurt and the pain, not to mention to do anything about all that stuff. And it seems to me, friends, that my fellow followers of Jesus have spent a whole lot of energy being confused or even mad why someone else is passionate about some issue that they're not passionate about. 
Why are our differences not an occasion to learn and to grow in our understanding of how big the compassionate heart of God really is, rather than throwing stones at our brothers and sisters or defending our turf? Each one of us is called to some different work in the world. Each one of us. God has given every one of us some part of his heart to see a need of some broken part in our world. And he has given each one of us the capacity, however limited, to respond and to act to that brokenness that he has put on our heart. So if your sister is passionate about something that you aren't passionate about, you have a couple options in order to maintain unity for the sake of witness. And the first thing that you can do is to pray for her. To pray for her. To pray for the work that God has called her to do. And maybe after a while, maybe you still don't understand, or maybe it even bothers you why your sister is so passionate about such a thing. The second thing that you can do is to have a conversation in order to seek to understand. Don't allow that person's issue to be defined by you by whatever media you're listening to. Let that issue be defined by that brother or sister who's passionate about it. So seek to have a conversation where you understand, not a conversation where you've lined up all the reasons why she shouldn't be passionate about it, (laughs) but a conversation to understand why she is passionate about it, a real conversation to listen and to understand. And if after having a conversation or a dozen conversations with her about that issue and you still don't agree or understand why she is passionate, passionate about that issue, you go back to step number one. You just pray for her. You don't throw stones. You pray. So, number one, be a forgiven and forgiving community. Two, seek to understand the passions and the giftings of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the third thing, the third practical suggestion, is to bear witness together with other believers. Find places in your life for not yet followers of Jesus to spend time with you and other followers of Jesus that you spend time with. There is power in that. When a non-believer encounters not just a believer, but believers in community, in unity together, Jesus says, may those believers be one so that the world may believe, so that the world may know. And so find places and spaces in your life to invite non-believers into your life with your believing friends, with your believing brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe on Sunday morning, but that's definitely not what I'm talking about, the most effective place. Most effective place is in your life. The places where you live and move and have your being. Invite non-believers into those spaces to experience Christian community there in those places. In your small groups, do something together for the sake of others. Extend hospitality to a neighbor. Invite a half a dozen believing friends and invite a neighbor or two over and simply have a place there to eat and share a meal together. A meal is a great place to break down barriers. And for non-believers to watch and to listen to you as you pray for your meal and to listen to the kinds of conversations that you have as followers of Jesus, 
to be able to see how you laugh and care for one another. Laugh with, not at. Laugh with and care for one another. So that third suggestion is to witness together. To enter into the world as brothers and sisters, arm in arm together as witnesses for Jesus. Lord, I pray that today, as we take this meal, that we would do it in thanksgiving for the work that you have done to reconcile us to yourself and to reconcile us to one another. So, Lord, may we be faithful to live up to what we have already attained. In Christ's name, amen.